0: Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's Dry Cleaner cast, I am joined by author and journalist David Nywert,
1: and we discuss the rise of the radical right in the age of Trump. So this is actually one of our longest episodes, but I actually think it's probably one of our most interesting. I decided against splitting the episode in half only because I felt that it kind of disrupts the flow so I'm publishing this episode as it is it's uh, over an hour and 40 minutes the majority of the episode is about David's book and his experiences with investigating the far right and the last 20 minutes David sort of um, flips the podcast around and asks me a few questions about my my background as a former conspiracy theorist and what I believed and how I kind of got myself out of that mindset. So um, I hope there's something in there that's interesting for everybody. Um, I, I really enjoyed doing this interview and I learned a lot from it and well I hope you do too. But before we begin um, just a very quick advert for budding writers out there. Are you a writer or producer working on a military drama like the last post or our girl or are you making an espionage series to rival spooks well rosser mcphillips mbe is here to help he is a former soldier in british military intelligence and he is offering a one-day course to writers directors and producers on the facts about the armed forces its culture traditions and how they operate overseas in conflict zones from his first-hand perspective. The course will open up a door to the closed world of the intelligence services and course participants will get an opportunity to see what the role of an intelligence officer is really like as they take part in a realistic conflict simulation exercise where they must make quick decisions based on disparate intelligence data to prevent a hypothetical terrorist attack. For more information about this course please email rossa at rossa.mcphillips at googlemail.com rossa is spelled r-o-s-s-a dot mcphillips which is m-c-p-h-i-l-l-i-p-s the venue is typically the royal holloway university of london at 11 bedford square london wc1b3r the next course date is saturday the 30th of june and the price is 85 pounds or 75 pounds for concessions drop rossa an email to book your place now
0: Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner.
1: David, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Pleasure to be here, Chris. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, um, I grew up in southern Idaho. Uh, and uh, in the you know, 60s and 70s, that was an area that was pretty much dominated by... Um, John Birch Society, uh, which was, you know, at the time was one of the leading uh, sort of pr- uh, promoters of conspiracism, um, uh, all aimed at, you know, supposedly communist uh, infiltration of America. It was a very McCarthyist organization. And uh, yeah, and, and because of that, um, I sort of developed an immunity as a young boy to this stuff because I, um, you know, I, I rejected it as, as, a, as a kid, I realized that it was Bosch, and, um, and so it was always sort of part of my psychological background, and certainly when I started working in newspapers as a young man, I, I, my first job was, I was 18, uh, and working at newspapers in northern Idaho, I was the, actually the editor of a Little Daily there in the panhandle uh, of Idaho, uh, in 78 79 um, Where and that was in a town called Sandpoint, which was about 20 miles north of a town called Hayden Lake Which is where we had very large or had just actually at the time a newly arrived um, group that set up a compound there called the Aryan Nations mm-hmm. um, and they were just flat-out straight-up neo-nazis, you know swastika bearing uh cross-burning sort of thing
1: aaron gives it away
2: yes yes (laughs) and and um we had made and because i I was a very young editor at the time i was only 21 um the publisher and i sat down and decided where to you know we wanted to discuss how we were going to cover this stuff right and we thought, oh, you know, these guys just want a lot of attention, so we're just going to pretend they're not there. We're just go- not going to cover them, not going to give them the, the attention that they're seeking. And um, within a couple of years, you know, the whole region was just awash you know, in this, all this wave of hate crimes because a lot of people moved to northern Idaho uh, to take part of this, um, in this, and a lot of them were criminals, quite frankly, including people who later, only four years later, in 1984 were part of the infamous neo-Nazi gang, The Order, uh, which um, I don't know if you remember them at all, but they um, they robbed something like 24-25 banks and armored cars and assassinated a radio talk show host named Ellen Berg Oh, in yeah. denver
1: and that was a really good film about that talk radio yeah i'm a big fan of that film yeah.
2: yes they actually made two films about it another one a costa Gavras film called betrayed also uh, portrayed that assassination mm. you know that was a very infamous case instant but we're still feeling the effects of that case because uh you know you, you may have heard of the 14 words yes the 14 words uh which are the is a basically a slogan of white supremacists and neo-Nazis around the world Um, boy I should have memorized what the 14 words are but it's basically something along the lines of we must secure a future for our people and uh, a future for white children Mm. something like that Mm. and um, it was written by a member of the order when he was in prison because all of these guys except for the leader who was killed by the FBI Um, all of these guys wound up in prison and started spreading their influence through the prison system as well as once we hit the 90s online and He wrote these 14 words and it became sort of it's the it is the essence of how neo-nazis think so um, Anyway, we we had that all along, and I was just a newspaper reporter for you know all of the, the and editor for the eighties and into the nineties. Um, I started freelancing in in the early nineties, uh, along with my newspaper work, because I could see that um, I wasn't going to fit in well with the increasing corporatization of, of the journalism business. Um, and i was kind of looking for you know hoping that i could eventually break free of it and i did Um, but um, you know i uh, i went to work at msnbc.com back then because uh, their web newsroom was in seattle and um, uh, and but i was freelancing simultaneously and even before I went to MSNBC I was freelancing uh, and did a lot of uh, early work on these Uh, I was actually an environmental reporter and uh, but I started writing about these uh, militias that were organizing in the Northwest Pacific Northwest as um, an anti-environmental backlash uh, story and then Oklahoma City happened in 1995 and I was one of the only journalists who had actually gone out in the woods and talked to these people so I became a quote militia expert let me put air quotes around that and uh, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert but I play one on tv sort of thing but <laughs> but yeah over the years I did actually develop expertise in it um, and wound up doing a lot of work with the southern poverty law center Mm. who is now my primary employer and um, obviously I had a lot more of that kind of work through the 90s and 2000s and the um, a lot of the uh, environmental work kind of fell by the wayside but um, yeah and as you know as as time went on I I published so I published a book in 99 that was a study of the militia movement and then did a, wrote a book about hate crimes that was published in 2004 and um, published a couple of other books um, in 2009 and 10 that basically warned you know, essentially warned that we were going, we are going down a path that could lead us into you know a real revival of proto-fascism in the united states and of course those books didn't sell particularly well and in fact they went out of print because the publisher went belly up <laughs> so uh, you have kind of a hard time finding those books now although i think the one uh, book which is titled the eliminationists how hate talk radicalized the american right is still available through Routledge. And um, so I, you know, I was, um, I kept these, none of these books sold very well. And, you know, it
1: got to be a little bit depressing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately it's considered a niche topic probably until now, but yeah. back then it was a niche topic, I suppose.
2: Yeah, and, and, well, and, and people honestly, and, you know, I actually understand this. People don't want to, think about this stuff they look away because it's such an ugly subject it's the worst of human nature uh, be expressing itself out there in the world and um, so yeah naturally we look away but this is how it grows this is how it festers and it was certainly one of the things that I learned in 78 and 79 uh, when we decided not to cover the Aryan nations that that's just a huge mistake Um, You know, you can't, these people uh, fester in darkness and these ideas and movements fester in darkness because every one of these um, right-wing extremists sees himself or herself in a heroic light. They believe that they're saving mankind and not only are they heroic, but they actually represent the real mainstream of whatever society they are Mm -hmm. part of Mm -hmm. in the states it's they believe they represent the real america so um so you know the silence is uh interpreted uniformly as uh tacit approval and you know and it's true not just of right-wing extremists but also of hate crimes perpetrators it was one of the things i sort of talked about in my book about hate crimes at any rate I, I published a book in 2013 that was about um, the Minuteman movement which is a nativist border watch outfit there in, in the states that um, it involved a, a murder case and which is a woman from the northwest named Shawna Ford uh, got all involved in the Minutemen moved down to Arizona started setting up these border watches and uh, wound up you know, basically, she murdered a family down there, including this little nine year old girl. And I covered the trials. There are three trials involved. Um, two of the three people are on death row, and the third one is uh, now facing life in prison without parole. Um, and it was just a really ugly, horrible case it was it was actually a very difficult trial to sit through because um, it's just
1: to paint a picture am i right remembering the daughter of the family was shot in the face by these people yes yes she was Uh, unbelievable so
2: yeah i got to you know you get to see the autopsy photos that wasn't the the traumatic part the traumatic part was you know the mother survived she actually drove them out of the house um, when they came back to retrieve the ak-47 they had left on the stove and um, she had a gun and, and wounding one of them very slightly, but uh, created a lovely DNA trail for the detectives to find. And, and, uh, yeah. and uh, so they were all in, in jail within two weeks. But, uh, you know, she testified at all three of the trials. She was really a m- remarkable person, undoubtedly the bravest person I ever met. Um, just a little petite woman, very, very pretty. And um, she was there for every day of every proceeding they had in all three of those trials. And hearing her testimony was just some of the most gut-wrenching stuff I've ever heard. you know it was just So I got done with that book and I was like, ah, I need to do something different." I was felt hollowed out. So uh, <laughs> I wrote a book about killer whales because that's what I do to sort of spiritually yeah. recover from writing about this stuff yeah. as I go out hang out in my kayak I go to the wilderness I go hiking whatever I like to be in nature as sort of a in, you know internal renewal thing That's yeah. good. it actually works and it's very easy to do in the northwest um, and I had been writing about the killer whales since the 90s as well just articles here and there and knew all the scientists involved and I and I nobody had a good book out about killer whales so I thought yeah let's do one Uh, So, I did this book, and it happened to follow right in the wake of Blackfish, uh, the documentary. Yeah. So, it wound up selling really well, and God, it was a lot of fun to go around and sell it, although it was interesting to notice how the animal rights world is every bit as fraught with huge egos and toxic personalities as the civil rights world, but that's another story. (laughs) Another podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, and you know, when you get done with one book, the first, yeah. when, even as you're out promoting it, you start thinking about, well, what's my next book yeah. going to be? Because you need to start that process then. And I was enjoying the orca book so much, I thought, I'll just, do, I think I'll do a book about humpback whales next, you know, this is much better. And I couldn't really see any any uh, really promising stories uh, to write about as far as right-wing extremists go until, you know, Donald Trump announced his candidacy. And it wasn't Trump so much initially, uh, but by the fall of 2015, after he had announced, it was very clear to those of us who monitor the radical right that he was having this incredible stimulative effect on them they were organizing around him they were energized by him and they were successfully recruiting uh, under sort of his this energy and empowerment that he was giving them Uh, so um, I realized yeah I needed to really start focusing on that and we I I worked with the uh, nation institute investigative fund quite a bit um, and we started I talked to the people there and they said, Yeah, let's do a project where we were, we wanted to basically create a database uh, that would document uh, Trump's uh, many, many ties uh, to the radical rights as well as his the way they fed back you know the sort of symbiotic relationship spent most of that summer assembling all the material for that and it, it is this is woven into alt america you'll find a lot of the material there it's published in mother jones in october uh, but it kind of went unnoticed unfortunately because it came out only a couple of weeks after uh, hillary's remark about the deplorables had happened and one of the sort of fallouts of that was that the media conventional wisdom was that well we don't want to talk about that stuff right we don't want to talk about that anymore so uh, the story kind of got ignored at the time but it's it's still obviously very much part of the story and I you know um, or or, or part of what's happening in the states and you know I think that was made clear to Americans after Charlottesville as well as not just charlottesville the event but the aftermath and Donald Trump's reaction to mm,
1: it or lack of reaction
2: yeah. well and and calling them some of those are very fine people you know that was that was a pretty good clue and this is of course part of what we documented was that Trump plays this um sort of what we call I call it a two-step tango yeah uh, that he does where um, I think of, I mean, the, the first real model for that was um, when he was asked about David Duke's endorsement. And he refused to um, denounce David Duke in this interview with Jake Tapper. And the next day or two, there was this huge uproar over that refusal. And then, um, so then, then he came out and did a sort of anodyne- Yeah very perfunctory denunciation well no I want nothing to do with those uh, I despise David Duke uh, and then a couple days later he would do something that would make them happy again he tweeted out I think just a couple of days after the denunciation Duke tweeted out a retweet from the with the hashtag white genocide right mm-hmm. so uniformly what we found was that even that these anodyne and very perfunctory uh, and obviously insincere denunciations that he was making were uh, had zero effect in terms of convincing the folks on the radical right that he wasn't their guy because they would just say they just said amongst themselves oh he's just doing what he has to do to um, maintain his political viability what matters is that he really is one of us. And he kept doing these sort of things all throughout the campaign, as well as then once he was elected, it was doing them as well. And uh, yeah, and it just keeps building. Uh, it has not stopped.
1: There are some people out there who like to dismiss criticism of Trump or what we are discussing because they believe it is a partisan issue. Now, to me, this is beyond the partisan issue. <laughs> what, what, what do you think about that? <laughs>
2: Oh, man. Well, you know, I mentioned that I was raised in Idaho. I was raised Republican. Uh, I, I ceased being one. I went independent in the 1980s, and, and uh, nowadays I'm pretty much a straight Democratic ticket. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, when I was doing this in Idaho in the 80s, Idaho was actually one of the first states to pass a hate crimes law because we of this infestation from the Aryan nations and back then there was no thought that this was a partisan issue you know certainly I have never seen it as a partisan issue this is a matter of right and wrong and you know the, and right and wrong should not be a partisan issue mm. you know it's just uh, hate is wrong there's just. You can't get around it. And so, um, yeah, and of course, the Southern Poverty Law Center was never considered a partisan organization until the last 10 years or so. And it's only been because the Republicans have gotten so close, have gone, become so extreme in their politics that it has become a partisan issue or is viewed as partisan by them. But, you know, we don't really care. I certainly don't care what your party affiliation is. Uh, if you're indulging in hate mongering, fear mongering, uh, conspiracy theories, um, demonization of minorities, um, we're going to call you out. And that, you know, and there are people on the left. There are Democrats who do this. And we call them out too, um, and you know I certainly have no compunction about it because, you know, I, I, but I'm an old school journalist. I was raised in journalism when the ethos was the enemy isn't right or left. The enemy is bullshit, and that's that's still my operative ethos. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's so, a good ethos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: well. Let's, you've, now you've written a, a new book, um, which is called Old America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, and I think it's a fantastic book. Can you tell us who and what Old America is and yeah. what they believe?
2: Yeah, it's, um, I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> it, it is a phrase I coined, um, and I did it because actually in the 90s I had first observed uh, that these militia folks, patriot folks. Uh, conspiracy theorists, were creating this alternative universe for themselves, in which all of the world's, you know, every news story could be explained through the prism of their conspiracism and their very paranoid view of the world, but it created a not just an alternative universe, but a, a real epistemological bubble. Yeah, in which they could fully operate and it's kept growing since the 90s. Um, you know, it had a, a, a period in the early 2000s after the events of 9-11 um, when it was very much not um, really adopted by conservatives because the main object of the 9-11 truthers was George W. Bush, a, a Republican president. And you know, and, and mainstream conservatives really kept a very big distance between themselves and the Alex Joneses of the world. Alex Jones, by the way, got his start in the nineteen nineties promoting militia style conspiracy theories. Uh of the very I, I, I can actually trace the origins of his conspiracy theories including you know the fema concentration camps mm. and things like that well
1: he's a very popular figure in in old yeah. america in a sense i mean certainly um you know as many listeners who regularly listen to this podcast know i i was once a conspiracy theorist and i think it was alex jones's film road to tyranny that for me at least was the tipping point into becoming a conspiracy theorist for a mm-hmm. few years um he's very successful he's um he it looks i mean he makes must make a lot of money out of this too um yeah. You know, and I think a lot of conspiracy theorists don't realize that sometimes. Because he has a subscription-based model, or at least he used to, um, back in the early 2000s for access to his videos and things like that. And also you can buy the DVDs mm-hmm. and on top of that all the sort of sponsorship and various, you know, people joke about it, these weird supplements and things. He to say, to sell Let's now. not forget the herbal supplements. Yeah, yeah. Not... <laughs> 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 I never went that far, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh... Well, but, yeah. but as
2: you know, a yeah. lot of... Uh, one of the things that that certainly I've seen over the years is they they do recruit and uh, quite successfully a lot of folks from the left mostly through uh, these sort of health conspiracy theories the idea that you know, the FDA is uh, hiding cancer cures and that chemtrails are actually a plot to, uh, you know, degrade the health of mankind. And that and came f- up in the recent series of The
1: X-Files as well. It was yeah. A bit, uh, it was a bit disappointing really to see that they, uh, they kind of gave a nod to chemtrails at the end of an episode about the origins of Walter Skinner, who was Mulder and Scully's boss. <laughs> yeah no well that's how that is how it gets fed
2: uh there is a lot of mainstream winking and nudging at this stuff because a lot of people either um see it as you know maybe potentially possible or uh or find it amusing yeah you know so uh there's a lot of tolerance for it but people need to understand that it has a really profoundly um disruptive effect not just on the information stream but on the psychology of the recipients, um, it has um, it has a really powerfully um, unhinging effect on people. In part because um, you know when you go down this rabbit hole and you become enmeshed in these conspiracy theories, suddenly your neighbors are no longer your neighbors. They're either pawns in the conspiracy or potentially even conspirators themselves
1: right or just sheeple as people as the term yeah
2: yeah yeah and and so the dehumanization process becomes very easy Uh, one of the things you know of course a lot of people talk about mass shootings as um, in the light of the fact that most of them are male uh, or you know they're all gun owners or whatever but one of the things hardly anybody ever talks about is that they're also uniformly conspiracy theorists mm. and this is be- and the dehumanization of others is really key to people's ability to unhinge themselves or you know the unhinging of people enough to the point that they're willing to just kill other people mm. um, because those aren't other people to them they're just objects yeah. they're just uh, disposable objects.
1: And Old America um, has its roots in populist thinking um, and there's some parallels I was reading a book um, you list out sort of what old America believe and then you list out what populist thinking is and there's a lot of parallels I don't know if you just tell us a little bit about about this
2: and... well one of the the real effects I mean the, the the attraction of conspiracy theories and conspiracism in general is that it feels initially very empowering you know you you've, especially to people who or disenfranchised, or feel that they aren't, you know, are frustrated by politics and feel they're not getting the whole story. It's people outside of the media who are becomes have somewhat justifiably become suspicious of the media uh, and start looking for other means. And they, it, it tells them that, oh, you've got the secret information that. Only a few other people have and you can, and you can not, you can protect your family, you can protect yourself, you can save yourself from whatever apocalypse is coming down the road. And um, so initially it feels very empowering. But the thing about the whole narrative of conspiracism is that it um, essentially is ultimately incredibly disempowering because along the way it tells you, it convinces you that you, uh, that your democracy is a joke, that there's no point in communitarianism, that there is uh, no point in even bothering to vote or be engaged as a normal citizen in the democratic process. Because these are all your, because what the reality is in the alternative universe they occupy, that you're up against forces so entrenched and nefarious and, and deep, have that the individual person has no chance of surviving so you know the end point for most conspiracy theories is and we certainly see these folks in the northwest is people living out in the woods in a survivalist hut right
1: yeah yeah the and, or, with and their own you know high-powered rifles. right
2: right <laughs> or uh, you know and they have a yeah. bomb shelter out there to boot yeah <laughs> And but but I shouldn't laugh because it's it's actually very serious because you know these folks can be um, very dangerous but the worst part is that it convinces them to disengage from their democracy and that's what people need to think about because they're you know think about who these conspiracies and who this conspiracism benefits it's the wealthy yeah it's and, and this is one of the things that I've always tried to tell especially folks on the left who adopt this stuff because it's it's at very least it's a distraction from the very real and open conspiracy that takes place right in front of our faces every day of our lives and that is the very plain um, conspiracy of entrenched wealth and entrenched power to maintain its status quo and not only to uh, maintain it, but to enhance and increase it, to get richer, to get more powerful. The rich and powerful are always working to not only maintain it, but to drive, you know, uh, keep other people from obtaining it themselves. And so, you, you know, who benefits from undermining democracy? The rich and the powerful, the people who are already rich and powerful. That is who benefits because democracy is their greatest stumbling block. That is what they f- actually hate the most. Mm. Uh, as much as they have contempt for ordinary people, it is really kind of embodied in their eagerness to promote this yeah. sort of conspiracism.
1: And there is this, there's an origin in this anti-government sort of ideas that inform um, this thinking and um, I, mean, I, I don't know it didn't exactly start in the 90s but the 1990s the year of Bill Clinton was quite a significant part of that. It was when these militias and the patriot movement were really sort of really yeah. becoming quite big weren't they
2: well yeah and some of this had to do with the, the way um, the way that Republicans responded to the Clinton presidency because he, he outfoxed them. Uh, he was incredibly frustrating to conservatives because a they kind of by you know the 90s they'd kind of come to see the presidency as theirs for very long term and uh, just naturally so and then suddenly this guy comes along and he he actually used their own issues against them or, or to defeat them and and um and ra- so rather than t- attempt to feed him through normal political means they just sought to delegitimize him right mm. and they would used any means that they could including you know right-wing media and fox news to constantly spread both true stories about him as well as false ones including the conspiracy theories and one of the keys to that was you know his um passage of gun control laws and the uh, assault weapons ban in 1994.
1: That's what really set a lot of these um, mm.
2: militia types off.
1: And this was after Ruby Ridge and Waco. Am yes. I right? Yeah, because obviously those events, certainly for um, the Oklahoma bombing um is it timothy mcveigh yeah um were very inspirational so the gun control side of it must have really sort of been freaking them out at that point they thought they were coming the government was coming for them
2: yeah well certainly timothy mcveigh did as did you know eric rudolph the atlanta bomber um who were really our two most notorious domestic terrorists in the, of the 90s though there were we actually had a, a pretty good spate of domestic terrorism then but um a lot of other cases as well but those are the most notorious Uh, obviously mcveigh because he killed 168 people um but yeah they were you know mcveigh you know before oklahoma city drove around the countryside or the country um selling copies of the turner diaries which was a neo-nazi text uh, that basically was a blueprint for race war that had been published was part of the Aryan Nations thing that I was dealing with in the early 80s. He would go around to these gun shows and sell guns out of the back of his car as well as copies of the Turner diaries, right? And he was very much caught up in that radicalism. And yeah, it was paranoia, fear and the hatred of the government.
1: And these gun shows you can actually am I am I right in thinking actually um buy assault weapons without any sort of checks of any sort can't you i think that's why they're popular is that right
2: well yes although not they don't actually allow dealers to sell at the shows but what i used to go to these things all the time in idaho and montana and washington and a lot of the business takes place out in the parking lot you know guys will bring their guns and oh i got one for you out in my (laughs) car (laughs) and and they'll sell them that way that was what McVeigh was doing yeah. Uh, and he was actually selling stolen weapons because he, he raided a place. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Then after the 90s, obviously the early 2000s, we've sort of touched on this already but this is where September the 11th kind of comes in and these ideas are starting to be adopted. Um, you know, this sort of people like Alex Jones are coming onto the mm-hmm. scene and gaining popularity, aren't they, in mm-hmm. the 2000s?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, the, the mainstream folks really resist or mainstream conservatives resisted it initially but what was also happening during that era was um, mainstream conservatives were also becoming increasingly authoritarian Uh, and particularly um, you know in terms of the conduct of the iraq war people who dared to criticize the bush administration were dismissed as traitors and accused of you know hating america why do you hate america that was a very common phrase then and, in you know, really um, ugly reactions to people who um, simply questioned the war.
1: Like the Freedom Fries? Um yeah. Dixie Chicks, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they were, Dixie Chicks. Were they the pussy rocks of their case. time, I
2: suppose? The they thing. were. They were and yeah no i love the dixie chicks by the way but uh, and uh, you know not ready to make nice is still one of my all-time favorite songs
1: so are they still going are they i just saw them
2: last um, year okay, good. yeah they, they they went quite for yeah. quite a while and they haven't put out any albums but uh they uh toured last year yeah. uh they appeared on the country music awards um with beyonce doing uh, daddy lessons it was fantastic great
1: show But anyway, uh, so. (laughs) So, yeah, so the mainstream conservatives basically saying you're with us or against us. And at the same time, Alex Jones was saying George W. Bush is a member of the New World Order and that this war on terror, in a sense, was a way for, you know, he had this idea that the UN were trying to take over America and, and, you know, basically get rid of uh, the Constitution and all sorts of things.
2: Well, and simultaneously we had, there was, A a real problem with the media Mm. uh, in in terms of the war because the media essentially ran with what the Bush administration was telling us in terms of getting us into the war there's weapons of mass destruction there there's all this stuff and it all turned out to be false later And, and a lot of people Developed a very natural mistrust of the mainstream media as a result of
1: that and of government as well, right?
2: And, and so it, people became unmoored from the sense of uh, that of Surety that mainstream media used to give them and it created this sort of state of flux where people increasingly couldn't tell what was real and what was factual and what wasn't, and and Alex Jones played a major and and Jones and the whole, there really was a, is a whole conspiracy industry built around this. I don't need to tell you that, um, but yeah, and and so there was um, it, it, it was this chaotic, very fluid world in which authoritarianism was also rising in a really came to a focus uh when barack obama announced his candidacy yeah. in 2008
1: yeah so talk to us about 2008 because that was quite a significant sort of time <sighs> this is where you have like the birther movements born and, yeah and things like that well uh,
2: and it, you know the, some of it was even before the birtherism came along cert, uh, you know clearly what uh, some of it was was that there was um especially once Obama was elected, sort of a regression to the Clinton tactics of we're not going to defeat him through normal political means. We're going to delegitimize him. Mm -hmm. And it especially became acute because he was a black man and had a foreign name, foreign-sounding name. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so all of that played into it. But actually, we saw it, starting to um, real gather at the or I should say you know Southern Public Law Center and those of us who monitor this stuff started seeing it starting to gather even in 2007 um, militia move through uh, what we were seeing in terms of militia organizing because militias very really went into complete regression through most of the early 2000s especially after the Y2K apocalypse uh, oh, failed to materialize yeah. Yeah. and it was that was a bad moment for for the uh, militia folks cuz uh, they had all these people who had their basements full of beans and rice waiting for the Y2K apocalypse to arrive and it never happened and they felt gulled right they felt they had been fooled so went into a very serious downturn i think that the low point was 2003 uh, there were only like 131 uh, militia groups then And it stayed at that low level through most of the Bush years, but around 2007 after Democrats took control of the Congress, we started seeing numbers starting to increase and um, you know, I think they went up to 500 in 2008 and then by uh, and it just kept growing, you know, by 2012, we reached an all-time peak I think of uh, around 950 uh, mm-hmm. militia groups mm-hmm. in the country or nearly 1,000 and um, you know and, th- and that was you know really significant growth and and so um, yeah, you know and we just use the numbers as kind of a gauge uh, for you know the temperature out there um, but what we were seeing on the ground is very much the case and yeah it wasn't just the birtherism it was actually the tea party movement. That was really key to this, um, because the Tea Party movement, of course, was financed by all by rich people, as uh, but who pretended that it was grassroots, right?
1: And they had—am I right, I think they had sort of um, sort of libertarian mindset of small government uh, and and sort of so on. And or am I wrong with? that?
2: Well, that was what they told the media. Yeah, you know, but mm. if you actually went to the meetings, that wasn't necessarily what was going on so um yeah very i started covering i actually the uh f- very first tea party rally was in seattle by this it was set up by this woman named carrie calendar and she had um this rally and yeah uh, 2000, late 2008 i think or early 2009 And I went to that and started going to these things. And, yeah, I was primarily libertarian, but I was also seeing signs uh, of conspiracism all around this, and especially the where's the birth certificate stuff Mm -hmm. showing up, as well as um, the belief that, um, you know, Obama was going to be
1: was basically going to impose a totalitarian regime on them, right? Which never materialized. Again. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. They're certainly not where Sharia law passing in America or FEMA camps finally being filled up and or gun control <laughs> or gun control. You know, yeah, yeah, that was um, the yeah, one. yeah. That was
2: one of the big ones. Is that they were sure that he was going to start coming and grabbing their guns, and of course he didn't even make a a move in that direction until yeah. after Newtown.
1: Yeah, because he had this terrible because where Sandy Hook he had that terrible conspiracy theory around that obviously every mass shooting has a false flag conspiracy theory but Sandy Hook in particular um, you know, members the victims families were being harassed by these people and yeah, yeah. No, it no, It's,
2: yeah. so, ugly. it's yeah. so ugly and that kind of gets to what I was saying about the dehumanization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. process. because. I mean, a normal human being would feel empathy for a parent that had lost their child in such a horrible fashion, right? Yeah. But these people have lost their sense of humanity to such an extent that they will actually call and harass a parent that's lost their child and tell them that their child never existed, that you're part of a plot. You know, I, I, it still boggles my mind to even think about that. How, how can you go down that far? But it's… It's what happens. And so, yeah, I remember going to a tea party gathering in Montana, in western Montana, a little town of Hamilton in early 2010. Um, and it, was, it had Larry Pratt from Gun Owners of America was the key speaker there. And Pratt was actually one of the people who back in the 1990s was actually involved in the very first um, in this uh, meeting in Estes Park. Uh, where they where the radical these extremists decided they wanted to form this militia concept as a Mm. organizing strategy, so he's been involved with right-wing extremism for a very long time and sure enough, you know I I went to this get this tea party meeting and it was they had all the same books That I used to see at the militia meetings out on the tables They were saying the same things, spreading the same conspiracy theories. Mm. It was fundamentally Uh, Just like the militia meetings I used to go to in the very same town Mm -hmm. back in the 1990s. So it was very clear that that to me that the Tea Party movement had become a major conduit for this kind of extremism to make its way into the mainstream. And especially because we had a mainstream media that was not willing to confront that reality and in, in fact kept saying, well, you guys are about small government, right? No, actually, they're about... Crazy shit. Yeah.
1: Now, is cursing aloud? No, it's fine. <laughs> okay. We have the explicit symbols, so don't worry, we're fine. Because I, I, I do worry, because our topics that we talk about in this podcast are not exactly uh, the cheeriest of subjects, and it's adult content, basically. So I thought explicit should be there from day one. So now, in 2013, um, Black Lives Matters appears on uh-huh. the scene um you know in response to a lot of um high profile deaths of black men in particular at the hands of mainly white police officers and this is um this time now as well as so the uh, you know the alt-right really have a problem with black lives matters and they start saying that all lives mm-hmm. matters and i think this is where the white genocide hashtag mm-hmm. comes from i think but uh
2: yes yeah. yes uh well the white genocide folks and it, it, they're very closely linked to the 14 words folks mm-hmm. the the whole idea of i mean white genocide e- or uh, diversity equals white genocide is the slogan that's what white genocide refers to yeah um or or multiculturalism yeah. equals white genocide and yeah it's an attack on multiculturalism it's um and they see multiculturalism as Part of this plot to uh, enslave and destroy white male Western civilization, right? Well, this was a conspiracy. This was actually a theory that was concocted by um, white nationalists in the late 90s and early 2000s, they called it cultural Marxism. Oh, yes, I've heard that phrase a few times, yeah. Yeah, well, you'll, yeah. Le- you'll even hear a guy like Jordan Peterson, yeah. who's now considered a mainstream right-wing guy, yeah. uh, refer to cultural Marxism as though it were a real thing. Uh, it, it's basically this theory that, um, that multiculturalism is the product of a cabal of... Uh, scholarly Jews of the Frankfurt School they called it who wanted to basically destroy uh, you know white male civilization and it through nefarious means to the typical conspiratorial means uh, would impose these views on impose these views on the rest of society and called it multiculturalism mm-hmm. Well, if you know anything about multiculturalism, it had nothing to do with these guys whatsoever. It, you know, one of the real originators of multiculturalism, uh, considered the father of multiculturalism, uh, is Franz Boas who was in fact Jewish. Um, he was, But he was also the father of modern anthropology and it was really through anthropology that multiculturalism arose, you know. It was, it was, and let's face it, the the real sort of de- decisive event in uh, what made multiculturalism viable and the dominant worldview was the Holocaust. The world reeled when we realized what white supremacy yeah. could wreak. Yeah. Uh, when we saw the results in these piles of bodies, um, and so, you know. At, at, Basically after World War II, multiculturalism became the dominant worldview for very good reasons. And it's one of the things that that still kills me about conservatives is they'll attack multiculturalism sort of generically without giving us an alternative. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. It's a dizzy word to them. I've I've you know yeah. heard that, you know, we've discussed a multiculturalism, you know.
2: But it, but here's here's the point to those folks. You only have two choices. You have multiculturalism or you have ethnic nationalism. Those are the only really kind of two worldviews available to us. Maybe somebody could come up with a third system, but that's what you got. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, ethnic nationalism in our society, in our context, obviously is white supremacy, white nationalism. And so that's your choice. You either go with multiculturalism or you go with white nationalism. You know, which which one are you going to, which side are you going to be on? Yeah. Which, yeah. which one are you going to choose?
1: Yeah, well, I want so, multiculturalism yeah,
2: yeah. It, Especially yeah. if you believe in democracy yeah. and you believe in a democratic society. Um, yeah, no, it, it, multiculturalism is the only answer. And, and Boas, you know, wrote a book explicitly about mm-hmm. that, about uh, democracy and race yeah. and how multiculturalism was the only form of uh, approach to the world that was actually compatible with democracy
0: like what we're doing support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast patreon subscriber today go to patreon.com dry cleaner cast that's patreon.com dry cleaner
1: from black lives matters we're now moving into 2015 and the president the beginnings of the presidential race and you've got Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are campaigning for the Democratic nomination, and Donald Trump... Sorry, Donald Trump. (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) Trump. It's a good Freudian sliver. Yeah. So Donald. <laughs> <laughs> so Donald Trump's announced that he will run for president, and unfortunately, we all know the answer of what happens there. And he wins the presidency by um, eighty thousand votes in three key swing states. Mm-hmm. So um, can you just talk about us talk to us about that period and the significance of Donald Trump's campaign? You touched upon it earlier, mm-hmm. but um, I think you know this is is a very important moment where. The alt uh, the sort of alt right ideas finally become into the mainstream, isn't it? And these conspiracy theories. And...
2: Yeah, well, that was one of the things that certainly we saw. And you know, the alt right had uh, gotten its start, um pre- you know, in about 2012, 2013, around the whole GamerGate controversy, which was a video gaming controversy that actually became a major recruitment mode for. White nationalists, right? And that was how uh, the alt right started gaining momentum. And they were actually starting to fall apart in 2015 until Donald Trump came along. And he became the banner under which they could all unite. And this is one thing that's important to understand about the radical right. First of all, they're the most god awfully unpleasant people in the world, they're paranoid, contentious. Um, nastily suspicious of everybody, including their fellows, and they have huge egos. So um, they're constantly at war with each other, constantly bickering, constantly accusing the other of being a traitor and so on and so forth. So typically, right-wing extremism has a lot of difficulty being cohesive.
1: Conspiracy theorists are exactly the same. You know, people arguing over different theories, and if you believe one theory, you know, the accusation of being a shill or whatever, you know. It, yeah, it, yeah. I remember these forums. I remember when with the 9-11 movement, the known pla- No Planes Theory started to gain popularity. And personally, I always thought that was absurd. And the arguments people had over that thing was just unbelievable.
2: Yeah, well, and it is very much yeah. part of that same world because, you know, the, 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 the underlying um, d- fuel, the underlying uh, sort of phenomenon in all this is authoritarianism. Um, and authoritarianism involves you know right-wing these very distinct personality types Um, you know the authoritarians you know authoritarianism is built around three um, behavioral and attitudinal clusters Uh, the first is authoritarian submission the idea that you need to submit to the will of the leader the authoritarian leader second is authoritarian aggression um which is aggression towards anyone who fails to submit or be sort of secondarily anyone who is uh in leadership position who is deemed illegitimate not not the real authoritarian type and then third is this conventionalism this belief that you're representing the real america and those three clusters create this whole series of traits including um compartmentalized thinking uh gullibility towards uh, eagerness to subsume uh, uh conspiracism as well as you know magical thinking and all this stuff that's sort of associated with it this is deeply irrational stuff and yet the belief that they are still normal right that they are uh, so um yeah it, it, it's a, it's a, r- a really powerful phenomenon and it crosses A lot of boundaries you know obviously includes the alt-right um but also the sort of militia patriot movement which is a different segment than the the alt-right and then it, it ultimately also encompasses a lot of mainstream conservatives because they have a lot of these sort of authoritarian tendencies to begin with so um they became yeah and under trump who clearly is a classic sort of authoritarian leader and leaders are very just different personality types and we can get into that but he is very clearly setting himself up as an authoritarian leader type you know someone whose instincts are what matter.
1: was it well his whole entire show the apprentice his book is it the art of the deal or something it's all about Mm -hmm. this sort of he just goes by gut instinct and Mm -hmm you know and um does away with bureaucracy i suppose which i suppose is popular with these sort of uh populist ideas things they always on about bureaucracy and people thinking too much they don't like nuanced people they want people who just uh decisive and do something
2: yeah yeah that's exactly right the personality types of um authoritarian leaders are very different from not very different but different in very important ways from right-wing authoritarians for one thing uh, right-wing authoritarians aren't as eager to actually uh, obtain power for themselves as they are to push power for their leader, right? Whereas the authoritarian leaders want the power for themselves. They, it, essentially, their personality type is what we call social dominance orientation, uh, SDO, and they SDOs have a very clear personality type the best way I can describe it is sort of narcissism on steroids, you know, and that's I think a good way of describing Donald Trump. Yeah. The one thing they have in common, the thing that binds them, is they is the and it's the thing that makes them different from those of us who believe in a democratic society, which is um, the value of equality. They don't see equality as a viable or a relevant concern they believe inequality is the natural state of things and that you know the, in the real world and over history you know we've just got this dog eat dog and the dominant people are the ones who rise to the top and that sort of thing whereas you know those of us who believe in equality um, of especially equality of opportunity equality under the law um obviously resort primarily to democratic means mm. to obtain that sort of effect and we under, you know we understand that equality does isn't necessarily a natural thing it's yep. just it's something it's it's an outgrowth of actually the worst part of human behavior and human nature in the same way that slavery was mm. right it, it's a, a and that's why you know that so When we, you know, those of us who believe in a democratic society do value equality and right-wing authoritarians do not.
1: Yeah, they have a hostility towards what they call the liberal elites and they Mm -hmm. call minorities, uh, you know, parasites, basically. Yeah. This is what they believe.
2: Well, sure, and that's part of the whole uh, Mm -hmm. populist narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, populism has always been built around particularly right-wing populism has been built around this narrative that we call the producerist narrative and the producerist narrative basically posits that ordinary people are being victimized and being suppressed and oppressed by this conspiracy between this cabal of elites at the top and an oppressive or or a, 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 a parasitical underclass beneath and they're being hammered in between the two and that's that's really the essence of right-wing populism and it's in the states it's been around since 1790s when the whiskey rebellion happened right it was a really probably the very first expression of right-wing populism in our history and it really took root in about the 1840s with the growth of nativism and the uh, the attempt to keep Mm. the irish from immigrating to the to america And it just kept growing from there. Uh, It certainly was uh, a dominant factor in the post-Civil War era when Reconstruction failed because of the campaign of violent terrorism that was waged by the Ku Klux Klan, the, the Red Shirts, and all of these violent formerly Confederate thugs who terrorized black people and any whites who dared to help them.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we're, we're coming towards the, uh, the last section. Um, so in your book, you quote um, Timothy Snyder, who says, post-truth is pre-fascism, And to ban facts is to abandon freedom. Can you talk to us about what fascism is? Because I know it's a term that means many things to many people. And there are some people out there who think by using the term fascist or fascism towards Donald Trump's presidency, that's an overreaction and we're exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Well, there's been... I mean, one of the problems with using fascism is that it has been so overused. And so readily thrown out as an epithet for a very long time including by folks on the left um, that the actual understanding of what it is has become very degraded to the point that you know Jonah Goldberg could write a book called liberal fascism that was a best national bestseller and really is kind of the uh, is now the, sort of the default mm. view of mainstream conservatives which is that this belief that fascism was originally a left wing phenomenon. Let's be clear, that's baloney. There's zero truth to that. I mean, well, not zero truth. Um, fascism in the 1920s and even before was definitely a you know, sort of amalgam that attempted to use classic socialist appeals, but it was always towards a right wing end. Um, you know, and as the great historian of uh, fascism, Robert Paxton has written it, that within, with fascists it was it's critical to not just read their words because A, they were notorious liars. And, and B, um, their words ultimately were meaningless because what fascism was really about was this sort of visceral, feeling of the belief in blood and soil and the, the, the very right-wing sort of um, traditionalist um, worldview. And so, you know, if you actually looked at what fascists did, they aligned themselves, you know, the black shirts and the brown shirts both aligned themselves with um, the very rich or, uh, right-wing interests in traditional interests the not just the church but you know established businessmen and, and landowners in Italy particularly and and in Germany it was a lot of these veterans who had returned from the uh, war as well and its behavior was always very right-wing and was it was always a fundamentally right-wing thing so anyway uh, b- but a, another form of misunderstanding is this quote that you often see being bandied about by folks on the left that um, that cor- that fascism. It's this fake quote from Mussolini uh, that um, corpor- the fascism is the uh, uh, meeting of of corporatism and the st- or uh, yeah, corporatism in the state, right? Mm. Mm. That's it. Yeah. 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 You know, which is bogus. He never actually said that. And it actually isn't anything what <laughs> what fascism... about. Fascism ultimately is right-wing populism, which we just described, um, gone metastatic, gone crazy, gone uh, g-
1: wildly out of control. And what's fascinating, actually, a lot of the older Trump supporters are children of, you know, men and women who fought fascism on the battlefields of World War Two. And they just don't understand it. It's almost like, um, you know, I certainly older members of my family who are um, not, well, we're British, so we are not you know, they're pro-Trump, but they can't actually do anything about it. But it's like, I just don't get it. They grew up in a time when they saw what fascism did, and yet they don't seem to understand it's happening now.
2: Yeah, no, it, it's, and it is because that understanding of what fascism is about. And, and, of course, a lot of mainstream folks, um, including people that I work with in terms of fighting hate are you know we can't go to the fascism thing because we don't want to go there and we really don't want to think about the fact that we might be becoming fascist right or or very much in denial. Um, But you know I and I've I've warned in my book The Eliminationists in 2008 that uh, these forces that are the radicalization of the right was taking us down a path that was clearly proto-fascist. Now, fascism in its really fully mature form um, is is a very different thing from what we're experiencing now. As Paxton explains, it's actually a mutative phenomenon. It starts out as something very different than what it actually evolves into. But there are five stages of fascism. And we're sort of in terms of what we're seeing happen in this, we're in the third stage of fascism, which is the power acquisition phase. Mm. Um, and so it's still sort of proto-fascism. It's not mature fascism at all, but has the potential to be. I mean, certainly we look at Orban in Hungary, um, even Erdogan in Turkey mm. as being potentially very much fascist states and honestly I've I've been viewing I have viewed Russia as essentially a fascist state for some time now uh, since uh, really ever since I started really uh, looking at and seeing the evidence of you know the the anti-LGBT scapegoating that goes on in that country and, and the behavior of uh, 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 that's just classically fascist. I and think. the treatment
1: of minorities
2: yeah. as well. I mean,
1: like the yeah. gangs who literally target people who look obviously foreign and the yeah. police turn a blind Americans. eye to it. You know, it's, right. it's, it's it's shocking, some of the things. And again, like with Russia, people are feeling russia fatigue a little bit and there's certain sections of the left who never really believed in the russia thing and they turned a blind eye to it and there are people on the right who were once anti-communist who are now um, think russia's the best thing that ever happened and it's and, and uh, there's a later podcast I'm planning to do about the the financing of the far right certainly in Europe with and there's russian ties to it okay. and uh, and uh, and you know and as we you know with the controversy over the american election you know, certainly a lot of great journalism has been done on the possibility that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia, and they certainly benefited from Russian active measures that were trying to sow seeds of doubt. As we were saying earlier, it was only 80,000 votes that swung the election in the end. So what it takes is for any power to persuade people not to go out and vote for a certain candidate, or to persuade them to consider voting for another, you know, and it's...
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's true. And... Um... Yeah, and it expresses itself in fairly obvious ways, such as, uh, you know, the campaign against uh, gays in Russia. Mm. Um, But also, you know, we've certainly seen it in the States um, since Trump's election. And even before Trump's election, we saw, you know, a definite increase in hate crimes. Mm. Um, uh, It was actually very disturbing, particularly against Muslims and Latinos. But after he was elected, that first month after he was elected, uh, the SPLC recorded nearly 1,000 um, hate incidents just in that first 30 days after the election. And that's a, that's a phenomenal increase in hate incidents for us. And I went through the database and, with a fine-tooth comb yeah. and, and sussed it all out, and I ascertained that about 48% of those incidents specifically referenced Trump either the man himself or his rhetoric such as uh, gangs of white thugs assaulting Muslims or Latinos or gay people shouting Trump 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 as they did so or Trump wants you to leave as they bash somebody or um, people leaving graffiti on on a synagogue that has swastikas and says make America white again. Right? Yeah. You know, so so he, phenomenal increase, and and the striking thing about this is that honestly, it's it's driving me crazy. No one in the no- media has been noticing this. That that these people are using Trump's name to threaten people. Mm. I mean, does doesn't it that if you were a normative politician of any kind, wouldn't it appall you that people are are or attacking other people yeah. and using your name? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had it would.
1: With Brexit too, you know, yeah. people, the, you know, the day after the Brexit vote had been decided, um, you know, the Polish community, for some reason, the Polish community were targeted um, in London, and, you know, people getting notices just saying, you know, is, you know, Brexit's happened, you've got to go, and stuff like that, you know, and, and yeah. in terms of the UK, I mean, we, we owe the Polish a lot. There were Polish um, fighter pilots in, in the Battle of Britain, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, our freedoms are very much thanks to the polish you know and their actions so it's uh, i just don't get it it's, it's bizarre
2: <sighs> yeah I, I i mean it is it, it's very difficult to figure out how to respond and how to react um people do ask me you know well, well what can we do about it and i just say well, that was my next question <laughs> yeah <laughs> what, can it's, what can we do yeah. it's um first of all we need to not be um discouraged or intimidated by them because we heavily outnumber them there's a lot more of us than there are of them uh, at least in our democratic society certainly in Europe and in and in the States uh, secondly we need to um, I mean basically this is a profoundly anti-democratic movement it's in a, it's openly an assault on our democratic society and the only answer to it is more democracy. We need to revive democracy. We need to recognize that democracy's been assault, under assault both from you know corporate money, you know the the wealthy of the world who want to undermine democracy through various means ranging from Fox News to um conspiracy theorists, as well as it's under assault from these open fascists in some cases that we have in the radical right as well as the sort of sort of crypto fascists who call themselves the alt (laughs) light right and and it's an attack on democracy the only answer to it and the only thing they understand is just raw political power and we can demonstrate that by getting people out to the polls you know, I, I think a lot of Americans. I, you know, I don't live in Europe, so I don't know what the conditions on the ground are here. But uh, certainly, in in the states, it's been become very common for people to become complacent mm-hmm. about their democracy. They don't about politics. Oh yeah. They they, they see common, politics yeah. as, you know, it's a game that they play on the media, and, and it doesn't affect my real life,
1: right? Brexit was the biggest way up call. I mean, I so many people I spoke to. Um, prior to brexit who were like oh it's not going to happen
0: you know and i, and I yeah. remember making
1: a point of facebook every day about a month before of saying right well, it's t-minus so many days till brexit will happen in hope it might inspire some people to actually yeah. take this seriously and unfortunately i was proven correct in the end that it was going to happen i mean it out of my my i i the sense i have a left-wing bubble to an extent because i'm in the media and most and you know i'm left-wing myself not far left but center left and a lot of my friends are very similar to me, but I'm because I in the media I do have to meet real people, um, and, and my family are very different to me in my ideology. And so I, I sort of in a sense they're they're my there was the word not petri they're my test in in what other people are thinking. And mm. and Brexit was very popular, um, you know, in the home counties where I'm from, everybody was so pro Brexit, it was unbelievable. E- you know, even. Certain minorities, you would think, hang on a minute, that's ridiculous. Why are you pro Brexit? You know, you had um, owners of curry houses who were pro Brexit because they were worried that too many European people um, coming into Britain was causing the government to have to be um, harder on, you know, people from uh, Bangladesh and things like that. And they thought that if we um, were pro Brexit, it might you yeah, the regulations might soften for us and so on it was it was unbelievable and and you know
2: <laughs> well certainly it's been my experience that you know authoritarianism crosses all kinds of boundaries including racial and ethnic ones mm-hmm. um i have seen any number of yeah people of color out at these alt-right rallies that i've been covering yeah. uh and yeah no the it's so it's but they are all all have authoritarian personalities they all um they all want you know a lot of it's pretty understandable because um because it's very much a human thing to want security for your family and to um to be fearful in situations where the media is ginning up a lot of fear right Mm. and but those those the media is doing that for a reason because it wants an authoritarian response it wants you to believe that you know the my way to security the way to uh, fix these problems of the world is to have someone who will just come through with a big clean sweep and uh, erase all of these problems all of this bureaucracy and all this nonsense this uh political correctness as well
1: oh yeah they um, love term. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: with with
1: just the the wave of their authoritarian wand. You were saying earlier, it's the, sort of the hero's journey, the hero's narrative. You know, if you look at popular media, like heroes like Jack Bauer, who just do stuff, even in mm. religion of Jesus Christ, you know, we, we look to these sort of figures to fix everything for us, and, and we don't want to fix them ourselves.
2: Well, the, the heroic um, mythology is, in many ways, what's killing us. And look, I, I love Marvel movies as much as anybody, you know. The superhero stuff is our is our most popular form of entertainment right yeah. now. So the the heroic myth is really deeply embedded in us and in our culture. But people need to and the it's it's also really key to right wing extremists and and I've been studying that aspect of it for a long time because every right wing extremist I ever dealt with Saw himself as heroic. They're saving society. You know, Shawna Ford, this woman who yeah. murdered his family down in yeah, yeah. in Arizona, saw herself as saving America from illegal immigrants, and yeah. this justified her doing anything, including murdering a nine year old girl, right? And so, um, <laughs> but but the the key to and, and there's a real important sort of um, dynamic there that's at work because the heroic myth if you see want to see yourself as a hero the first thing you have to do uh, heroes always have to have an enemy
1: mm.
2: you know, right? So the first thing you do is create the enemy yeah. you name the enemy you identify who that enemy is in a lot of cases they're just kind of creating like the John Birch society creating communists out of thin air in the 60s they're just creating these enemies from nowhere. Um, the enemy for so so you see it applied, say to Muslims, um, because of course there there are actual enemies. There are people out there who are terrorists, right? Suddenly they're all mm. <laughs> they're all potentially yeah. that enemy. So it's not just the, the radical Islamists who are the enemy. It's all Muslims who are the enemy, yeah. right? And that is how. That is how the heroic dynamic is killing us because we no longer see ourselves as um, just human beings trying to muddle our way through the world, which is really what we all are. Right. Rather, we're we're going to save the world, or we're going to set you know fix all these things and set things right. And honestly, the left does that too. I mean, I deal with the people who want to save the world from global warming um want to save the whales want to uh punching re- a nazi has become yeah, popular yeah, yeah. They, or right yeah. or um right the the far left you know definitely puts themselves into a heroic mode yeah. right that's what a lot of these uh, black block folks yeah. that i've dealt with at these alt-right rallies um, and who have actually assaulted me much more than the alt-righters ever have. I've been assaulted numerous times by these wow. by these black folks because I carry a camera yeah. at these rallies, and so I, I'm not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, you know, in some ways, I'm actually glad there's somebody out there opposing yeah. these guys. I just wish that they were disciplined and yeah. were communitarian and, and respected democratic society. But they don't. Anarchists don't believe in democracy any more than no. the fascists do
1: and in a way it's an opportunity for anarchism to rise as well this is the right. frustrating thing about um, anarchi- um, the far left is because equally this is an opportune time yeah. for them and their agendas too so it's yeah. good grief
2: <laughs> yeah so yeah. you know yeah it's it's all fraught as James Aho the guy who wrote this book back in 1992 that talked about this heroic dynamic yeah. uh, explained then and i really think he was totally on the money um the book is called this thing of darkness sociology of the enemy and it was a study of right-wing extremism but he and he does point out that the left is very much fond of seeing itself as heroic as well and he says that, that our only way out of this is to renounce our heroism to start Stop seeing ourselves as heroes and start seeing ourselves as just human beings. We're simply human beings. And let's and you know how we fight this is we link arms like human beings and respect each other as human beings. And, you know, form communities and, and stand up to it because that's what actually works. So that's how we deal
1: with this. Excellent. Well, David, just before we wrap up, there are there any final thoughts that you have that we haven't touched upon that are important to you?
2: <sighs> no, no. Um, the only thing that um, that I that I kind of realized I'm, I gloss or skipped over because you were asking about um, you talked about Black Lives Matter and and the, and how it fed into the events of 2015 and 16. I think the the real apotheosis of that was Dylan Roof, the young man who walked into the church in Charleston in uh, the day after donald trump announced his candidacy and shot nine people to death he was in many ways what we now think of as the prototype of the alt-right terrorist the alt-right killer um and in many ways he really kind of represents the the end point for where the alt-right takes you uh because he was only radicalized he was radicalized online he did not belong to any organizations he wasn't a member of the Klan or any of these groups but he did go on to Daily Stormer and Stormfront and Council of Conservative Citizens and not only read the stuff but he uh, would participate in the forums and, and that sort of thing and he got really radicalized by you know the the killing of Trayvon Martin situation. He believed that George Zimmerman was being railroaded, and this is where he started um, picking up this idea that uh, black people that black people were uh, inordinately criminal and inordinately uh, attacking and assaulting white people. Well, and he got this idea from these fake black crime statistics that had been cooked up. Actually, in the early 2000s, by a well known white nationalist named Jared Taylor, who created this book called The Color of Crime. And it had all these fake numbers in it, just drawn from nowhere, that tried to demonstrate that black people were killing white people in large numbers. Um, Simply not true, right? But it was so pervasive that, you know, and, and it infected his worldview so much that he felt it was important to go out and kill Um, similarly one of the other heroes of the alt-right was this young man named uh, Elliot Roger who in I think 2014 went on a killing rampage in Isla Vista California I believe everyone's seen his video because he is the young man who
1: and he's they a good-looking young guy was he the hunger games killer is what they dubbed him because his dad was the first assistant director yeah. on the film That yes him now
2: yeah yeah well-to-do came from a very well-to-do family uh good-looking young guy and um decided to uh go out and murder women because he couldn't get a date and one he's actually a hero to a subset of the alt-right that calls themselves the incels which is short for involuntary
1: celibates. I've not heard of that one but Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 yeah. They must be a fun crowd. <laughs> well,
2: this is all yeah. this is all part of yeah. you know the origins as yeah. I mentioned of yeah. of much of the alt right organizing was in Gamergate, which was a profoundly misogynist thing that attacked feminists. And right? this
1: is when Milo Yiannopoulos
2: became very famous in the indeed, UK. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. And, um, yeah, and so the, the, the misogyny, the underlying misogyny, and that is one of the really uh, sort of distinct traits of the alt-right as a proto-fascist um, uh, phenomenon is that, that um, unlike, you know, say the Klan or, or um, previous sort of or proto-fascist phenomenon that we've seen uh, that aren't quite as overtly misogynist, you know, they're more traditionalist. Misogynist in that way, but you know, standing up for classic white patriarchy. But these guys are actually hate women, and especially hate feminists. Yeah. And yeah, um, it, it it's in actually a, a very twisted sort of uh, white male privilege mm-hmm. thing. And so these are these are elements that that all play into it. And then there, uh, and what the symbiotic relationship with people like Trump is that Trump would then tr- actually tweet it out those very same black cr- fake black crime statistics later that December on a random tweet on it yeah. you know and so so um they're being told by people at the very top that that you know they're that they're on the right track, and this is very much a form of permission giving They're getting permission from their leaders and from these people sort of at the top of society including the Milo of the world as well as um, you know in Breitbart News and these other sort of uh, phony uh, news organizations that want to cast themselves as legitimate and, um, and they are they're viewed as, as you know, legitimate news sources by these folks, even though the information within them is just
1: ridiculously false. Mm. Um, well, one of the popular things with Breitbart is um, they love coming up with these sort of stories <laughs> about women being raped in Europe by Muslim mm-hmm. um, refugees, that is their favorite sort of story. Yeah
2: yeah yeah no it's well i i'm uh I've, I've had a sort of ongoing um um i had a very well i should say short-lived uh, uh <laughs> exchange with um this fellow who's the breitbart london editor on oh, who's twitter
1: rahim <laughs> salim oh, okay i don't know him but <laughs> well he's one of the guys who yeah. does
2: the the he's he's got a fetish about the especially sweden Right. He's all over, supposedly, the no-go zones in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. And apparently we have a
1: few in Birmingham or something in London. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I went to one of these supposed no-go zones in Paris, and it was just an immigrant community, for God's sake, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but apparently it's you know enough brown people to make white people uh, feel
1: uncomfortable or something. I don't know. I quite enjoy the no-go zones. They're my favorite. <laughs> yeah,
2: I thought they were lovely people. Yeah. So I, I uh, but anyway, it just depends on, I'm sure, you know, there's any number of places that are unsafe in the world, uh, and in cities that are high crime, uh, that have nothing to do with ethnicity. Yeah. They just had to do with criminal thugs. Yeah, yeah and so, so probably there's a few of those in the immigrant communities as well, but um, um, that's just because they're human beings like the rest of us. Yeah.
0: Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter, at DryCleanerCast.
2: You know, actually, let me ask you, here's one of the things that uh, I'm really curious about and and really kind of struggling with, because you used to be a conspiracy theorist. I did. And uh, I, you know, I'm covering this case this summer, where a young man got so caught up in the first the Gamergate and Pizzagate yeah. co- conspiracies, that yeah. he actually murdered his father. Crikey. And his yeah. family, yeah. His family they're lovely people and they tried really hard to pull him out of that mm. rabbit hole. Yeah. And nothing worked, nothing worked. And yeah. so how well, did I get myself out of it? How did you get yourself well, out of it? <laughs> it's
1: probably how I got into it as well. I mean, I got into it with the controversy of the Iraq war. And at the time, my logic was thinking, if the Bush administration can lie about that, what else could they lie about? And this is when friends of mine were like, oh, have you seen this video on the Alex Jones Road to Mm -hmm. Tyranny and stuff like that? On top of that, I was going through my own personal struggles. um, And it just hit a sort of tipping point. And so for about, I suppose it was about 2003, and it wasn't an immediate conversion. I it took a while. I think it was about September 2003, I finally got on board with it, and by about, It started to fizzle out my life about about early 2000s, no, summer of 2006. Um, Fun enough about the time of the known planes theory stuff came Mm -hmm. out. And um, on top of it, I did some research into, because I met a few people who were very much into the Protocols of Zion, and I knew that was nonsense. And it was trying to prove that the Protocols of Zion were not real, and the people's disinterest in that, even though it's supposed to be true seekers, that suddenly was Mm -hmm. the beginnings of me unraveling. And then sort of I read a lot of books about you know. I read, I was to read the books that challenged conspiracy theories. So like the Popular Mechanics book. Everybody was like, "Oh, the Popular Mechanics, dreadful!" And and I must admit, even I'd gone into that, but I, I realized I hadn't read it, so I'm being intellectually dishonest. So I read it. Um, See, not yeah. many people are willing to make that no and distinction. That, that's the thing. And and then I read another book, Voodoo Histories, by David Ronowitz. I think his name is. Um, and then there was a great sort of jokey BBC Two thing where they, uh, I think it was called the Conspiracy Road Trip where they, because with 9-11, um, the reason why I believed in 9-11 was there's a document called the Northwoods documents that was this sort of... Um, Sure. Proposal was it by the American government to fake terrorism to invade Cuba or yeah. something like that. So Very well known yeah. among conspiracy yeah. theorists. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And and um, and then the idea of the buildings being brought down because when they collapsed to you know to a layperson they kind of they didn't collapse in the way I expected when I watched it. So because right. uh, I was thinking of a building would topple sideways, but then when speaking to architects personally later on, you find out that they are designed to implode because they <laughs> don't want a building going sideways because it's going to kill more people. Right. Um, so when you start to learn those things and then seeing that it would require a ridiculous amount of thermite to actually be able to to destroy the foundations of the building, which was proved in this documentary, Right. it just, for me, in the end, it didn't hold up. But it it took me to personally want to do that. And that's the thing. I think it's because I've always... I've got a bit of an investigative mindset, um, which is probably what led me into it in the first place. Uh, And I just wasn't really equipped back when I was young. I didn't... You know, I wasn't um, an academic genius at school i'm very much an artist of an artist mindset and i like to see patterns and things like that which is possibly my downfall maybe a strength at times too um and and i was saying to you a thing earlier when we were chatting when we met earlier about like it seems to be a lot of fellow artists seem to be the people who are just as much vulnerable to conspiracy theorists as these right-wing people because even today uh, like when I I've been you know work on a lot of pro- corporate projects, commercial things like that, I get to know certain people in the crew, and lo and behold, at some point politics will come up somehow, and then somebody will say to me, oh, "Of course, 9/11 an inside job," you know. It's like really, and, and 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 they're not right-wing people. Some of them are even really very far left. Some of yeah. them are environmentalists. Yeah. Um, and it's and one or two of them are Christians. Um, and like I remember last year, a colleague of mine was very upset about the impending apocalypse, <laughs> which didn't happen. I don't know how um, how they feel about it now. I don't see they've really changed their views because they still, like with the Russia, um, the, the spy poisoning just recently, there's been an awful lot of counter theories like, oh, Porton Down did it or yeah. MI6 did it. And I've been online battling those. We've done some episodes on that too. Um and those very people who were saying to me nine is inside job or the apocalypse was happening last August send me random um, you know, links to random websites like Neon Nettle or um <laughs> There were some articles reading the other day by a guy called Tyler Durden, who happened to have the picture of Brad Pitt <laughs> from Fight Club, who, yeah. was, who was dismantling the quote unquote official story behind the Scripple poisoning. And it's just like, well, if the person's not even willing to actually tell you who they are and you're on a your known conspiracy website, surely that should ring alarm bells. But it's the thing once you, for me, I think once you see the. Um, it's feel like there's, there's a, a, an illusionist on television in the UK called Darren Brown and I really like him because what he does he exposes how the illusion works and then once you know that you kind of you, the trick never works anymore and with conspiracy theorists like with Alex Jones people like that you notice that every time a major event happens, is immediately a false flag before they've even seen any details. Right. Um, on top of that, you know, the guy is making a lot of money out of it, and then if you look at his track record, you know, all the FEMA camps and martial law and god knows what, well, none of that's actually happened. And yeah. I remember the 2012, everybody was into 2012, um, and his idea of the Mayan calendar coming to an end and we'll all be spiritually enlightened in 2013. Yeah. That never happened, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what else did that happen? I mean, there's so many things that haven't happen. Um,
2: yeah. Well, I but yeah. it, a part of yeah. my frustration yeah. has been that um, most of these folks are immune to yeah. effects. Yeah. Um, I mean, the FEMA camps are a classic example. You remember they actually had a map of where all these okay. FEMA camps were yeah. being built, and a number of them were actually in the Northwest. So just for giggles i decided okay i'm gonna go visit a bunch of these places
1: <laughs> oh, wow you know okay, and, and yeah. go go yeah. look them up
2: yeah and take photos and, and and just give people evidence of what they actually were what, what we're actually talking about uh mm-hmm. one of them for instance was actually what was a, a japanese american internment camp in world war ii yeah. it, it, it's a public monument you, there's no camps being built there at all uh, another one was just a forest service camp out in Montana somewhere and it's just got some barracks for forest service workers you know uh, and so you so I, you know I would give people these facts and they would just say well you're just part of the conspiracy well,
1: this is it. This is it. And I, I must admit even I don't know how to rationalize the conspiracy because at my worst you know um, I I would have equally have brushed things off you know um, mm. and I, honestly um i think it was i don't know i'm making it sound like i'm some great person i'm not <laughs> it was just literally i i decided to start because i realized I was being intellectually dishonest by right. criticizing right. this book and not reading it um and for me intellectual dishonesty and just dishonesty in general sort of one of my interests um uh, uh, and bugbear I mean, this life. might and have been yeah. why you got yeah. into it in the first place right Quite possibly you know and, and because I you felt on. you, you yeah. felt that you wanted to get at the truth yeah, and, right. I, and I grew up on the X Files and all that sort right, of stuff, right. and you know, um, and I was always you know the outsider at school, you know, go I could get my violin out here. But, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> no, well, it's but true. The disempowered kids, the disenfranchised,
2: of... kids, yeah. the disenfranchised yeah. ones, are the total targets for yeah. this stuff. Yeah,
1: and it, and yeah. It, so, so it all you know, when I look back on it, it makes a lot of sense. It's very embarrassing. You know, uh, the reason yeah. I'm
2: asking yes. is mm-hmm. that, that, I mean, this is really kind of the nub of what, uh, and, and maybe what I write my next book about because. Yeah. Uh, People all around, certainly all around the United States are having these struggles within their families Mm -hmm. with members who go down these rabbit holes and they alienate themselves within their families. They actually tear families apart um, and they have no idea. We don't really have any good tools for coping with it. We don't have any real uh, clear idea how you can attack it, how you can undermine it. It, it, Uh, it, The only thing I can tell them is that it has to begin with empathy. Mm -hmm. You have to actually start out listening to them uh, and finding the common ground, wait for them to say something that maybe you can agree with and then they say and then when you if you can show them that you're empathetic then then they will hopefully reciprocate a little bit and start listening to you. Uh, but it's it, but it's a really long, slow pro- process. You c- certainly can't do it with anyone. You have to ultimately. Uh, it has to be people you care about, mm. um, th- th- enough to invest this much time and energy into bringing them out of the rabbit hole, because it, that's what it takes: is a yeah. tremendous amount of time and energy and patience and. Forbearing of their um, frequently aggressive behavior against you for, you know, tackling this issue in the first place. So um, I mean that's that's all I have ever been able to tell
1: people. One thought I've had certainly in my life experience because I was in a very negative place for many years and literally it wasn't until I got into a long-term relationship and the living of another human being that (laughs) this… Actually sorted itself out. Now um, the reason I bring this up is because when I've spoken to in the UK we have this thing called Prevent that tackles extremism. It's before it becomes a, uh, some, an extremist becomes a criminal. If if they can be taken off that path somehow, and what yeah. they, and what I've been um, the guys I've been speaking to, because I'm planning to do a podcast this in the future. Um, if i'm correct in remembering what they were saying to me was that they don't manage, they don't always tackle the ideology head on they try and understand the social circumstance of the person first
2: what attracted them yeah to the because ideology. it's
1: usually that is the easier area to operate in and usually right. it's helping in that area that then tends to change the person's life circumstances which then over time will probably make them rethink their positions. There's only one of a few things they do, because I still haven't done this episode yet, so I still yet to have this full conversation. <laughs> but don't think in the US you quite have a similar, you don't seem to have a similar thing, uh, from well, as far as I know, um, where they try and tackle people before it becomes a criminal offence. And right. so these guys might be helpful, because they're dealing with far-right extremists, they're dealing with Islamic extremists, And, you know, anybody else who is thinking about maybe killing someone or blowing someone up for whatever reason, if they're found in time before they actually do it and, you know, it becomes a criminal offense, then they might be able to be turned away from it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, And it is, well, you know, it is ultimately that dehumanization that makes that violence possible. So how do we draw them back from... How do we draw them back from that eagerness to dehumanize other people? And the only way you can do that is with human contact and empathy. And, yeah, it's,
1: boy, it's it's hard. It is. It's a very, there's no quick fix. It's, it, you yeah. know, like the hero's narrative where you can just fix it just like that. Unfortunately, it's a very holistic thing. You know, it requires just chanting people for extended periods of time. It's right. therapy, isn't it? It's it's
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, yeah in in some ways it's love you know you have to love the person Mm -hmm. to some extent i think or at least care about them enough um you know they have to be a a dear friend or you know somebody you care about enough to invest that much time Uh, but uh, that's why you know and that's where family members come in uh, because i think they're actually the folks who are most equipped to be able to pull people out of these rabbit holes um and so I'm trying to, I, w- I would like to try to figure out to, yeah. a way to give those family members the tools mm. yeah. to do it with.
1: Um, family. So. I don't know, family are not always the best answer. Certainly if, um, Maybe not. No, because it depends on the situation. I mean, I always had a couple of, a, old yeah. friends, you know. Yeah, because friends definitely, I mean, unfortunately, I've lost friends over this. You know, there's some people, yeah. um, one or two close friends who are just so far gone and every time we try and meet up, it just turns into a, a very nasty political thing. And he's amazing, again, like one of my friends, uh, great case study. Um, he was so, uh, you know, libertarian left, you know, and and now he's a full-on, again, he's British, so he can't do anything about it, but he's a full-on Trump supporter, pro-Brexit. Um, you know, and one of the things, again, that turned me away from um, from conspiracy theories is realizing how everything is very right-wing. So it was anti-gun control, anti-healthcare measures. You know, they were calling Obamacare uh, mass euthanization or something. Right, right. It's I ridiculous. And, uh, and, and the thing is, I mean, like, you know, we're lucky in the UK we had the NHS. And, um, you know, I've seen firsthand how that's a real amazing thing and we're very lucky to have it and yet in the states you, you know in the states it's um for some reason even the I port- like the canadian system too yeah. Yeah. yeah and in the states some people who are very you know um unwealthy uh anti-free healthcare you know and it's ridiculous <laughs> i just don't quite get it um and it's, oh, it's strange yeah. well yeah
2: i mean yeah. it was pretty funny uh when they actually congress actually started to r- try to repeal obamacare mm. and all these working class people are out there were going yeah like get rid of that obamacare and then they realized but not the AC then they would say but not the aca don't get rid of the aca and you go uh the aca is obamacare <laughs> yeah. yeah you know because they needed the aca for their own health insurance yeah. right yeah that was yeah. that was what they were depending yeah. on and then suddenly and they're going. The, and once,
1: blah, cognitive dissonance. Woo. That's it. And once you see conspiracy theories that way, <laughs> you start to realise it is just pushing this sort of right-wing agenda. Which, as you were saying, yeah. in a sense, you have to ask yourself, who does it really? Again, be, who does be, it benefit? Which is a very classic conspiracy theory Who does it benefit? Um, but it does seem to benefit the powerful, and, and you know, it benefits the the organisations that make money out of healthcare or the NRA and the gun manufacturers. Yeah. You know um i mean yeah it's it's there's big money entrenched behind power. all this stuff entrenched
2: know. power and money mm-hmm. yeah
1: absolutely and obviously with um russia's involvement geopolitics you know yeah so, yeah and that's the other thing with the internet in a weird way because again conspiracy theories are not just a western phenomenon in the middle east you come across all sorts of things and 9-11 conspiracy theories are very popular in the middle east um as are ISIS run by israel and various other so every, you know you so what you do get as well is you kind of get um, other people's propaganda comes over because of the internet it comes to us right. you know right. and so right. i remember having uh, there was one uh, was it russian general who said oh we've you know i was working on September 11th at the, you know, Russian version of NORAD, and, yeah, we could see it was all an inside job. And it's like, well, of course a Russian general's going to say that. Why is he going to say that? Because, again, you know, he's anti-American. Right. He wants to sow seeds of doubt in the American population. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if you actually start looking at it in, in a real way, you can start discerning the motives. Yeah. But, yeah. but um, mm-hmm. when you're in that alternative universe, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's a very self-sustaining thing and especially because of the community aspect of it. Yeah. You have all these other people yeah. that are t- uh, uh, coming along with you and it, it the internet makes that really powerful in ways that it never was before. Yeah. No, these guys
1: were on the fringe and the internet has turned them into stars. Um, yeah. Well, David, um, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well,
2: uh, obviously the... thing they can do is to buy alt america because it's kind of in many ways it's it's a wrapping up of i've put a lot of my 30 years of career into this book uh so um but otherwise uh, i write regularly for southern poverty law center's website hate watch um i'm just one of the staffers there but um but I'm one of the older guys. So so they uh so everybody uh, the, you know uh, my stuff gets used but I don't write for them quite as much as I should. Um mainly because um I tend to do uh more in-depth stuff and a lot of the pieces that I write take a little bit longer to write yeah. and I'm an old-fashioned journalist <laughs> that way. Um but um but um, yeah, so that Hate Watch is probably the best place to see it, to find it. Um, I do write for you know I have uh, freelance pieces that go up. Uh, I had a good piece um, on the alt-right media ecosystem and Vice recently. So you know look for my stuff around in various uh, publications. But yeah, go to Hate Watch if you really want to read my work. But I'm, yeah, I'm there. I'm just a staff member. But I'm very proud to be a member there because Hate Watch does great work. And we are we are very old-fashioned in terms of you know we work very hard at nailing down our factuality obviously because this kind of work um, can raise threats of lawsuits very readily so we work very hard to not have that happen uh, I, I've I've been threatened with suits any number of times but I've never actually been sued because nobody's ever actually had the grounds to sue me on we just. And of course um, my favorite line is uh, you know we look forward to discovery <laughs> it's the it's when they always just shut up and go away because none of these guys want any uh, to actually take it to court they just want to shut us up yeah yeah
1: so. they fear the threat that would we'll be enough to do it yeah
2: yeah yeah and you know it's been known to to work at at uh, other places but uh, the SPLC generally tends not to succumb to that so yeah well david thank you so much right. i've
1: really enjoyed this thank you
2: yeah and likewise chris it's been nice meeting you
0: For more information about the podcast visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk thanks for listening